Hello and welcome to the Beef Edge, the Chagas Beef Podcast, for all your latest news, information and advice for Irish beef farmers. I'm Catherine Egan and at the Beef 2022 National Beef Open Day last week, a forum took place moderated by Ivan Yates. There was an open discussion with Professor Alice Staunton, RCSI, Michael Biggins, future beef farmer from County Mayo, Professor Frank O'Mara, Chagas Director, and Phelan O'Neill of the Irish Farmers Journal. This episode is a recording of the Beef Forum that concluded the Open Day in Chagas Grange. Ivan Yates first asked Professor Frank O'Mara to outline for us the future of the beef sector in Ireland. You know, we're absolutely realistic. The, the aspect of sustainability that means the most to you is your financial s- sustainability, and that has to come first and foremost. So, but the environmental sustainability is obviously ratcheting up in, in importance over the last number of years, and in particular in that, I suppose, climate change. And I suppose the, the overall message that we wanted to get across to people is that, um, you know, by doing the things that you would be doing to, to do good farming, um, in other words, starting with the soils and getting good soils or healthy soils, and that will get you healthy forages or healthy crops, that moves on to your healthy or, or animals, your, your good quality food that Alice will talk about, and to healthy profits. That's also good for the environment. So nearly all the technologies that we talk about for years, like good animal breeding, good animal feeding, good grassland management, good soil health, um, they are all important for um, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But we are moving into a new, um, I suppose, regime with regard to climate targets here in Ireland. I just, last night in preparation for this, I look back at uh, the 2019 climate plan, the climate action plan, and in that plan there was a target that agricultural emissions would reduce by between 10 and 15 percent. And within two years that plan was rewritten uh, late last year with a target of between 22 and 30 percent. So, you know, quite a big step up. But the other big change that has happened in that two years is that the targets now are written into national legislation. So the the 2019 target was an aspirational target, I suppose, a a policy objective. But now we have legislation, and the the man that was speaking to us a few minutes ago, the minister, will have to go into the Dáil every year and account for progress towards that target. So so that is a new, I suppose, reality really for us. And I suppose what what we all have to realise is that we can't ignore these targets. And look, it wouldn't be the right thing to do to ignore them because climate change is a big issue. Like, it is the biggest issue facing the world and and we we have to deal with it. And there's no point saying, well, we're great so we don't have to do anything at all. Everybody in the world, uh, the good countries, the bad countries, are going to have to put their shoulder to the wheel. So so it's it's the right thing to do. It's the the regulationary thing to do. But also, if we want to be a world-class beef industry and we want to be selling our our product um, into the best markets in the world. Well, there's a great opportunity now, I think, to kind of get a head start. Like, if we can show and demonstrate to our consumers that we actually are taking this issue seriously, that we've done something about it, that we've made progress, you know, we've the opportunity to be one of the first countries in the world, if not the first, to be able to make those kind of claims. So, so there's a regulatory driver here, there's the right thing to do, and there's an opportunity uh, for us. So I would say so, for those so three my reasons... Question, my question was... Can we meet those targets yeah. without curbing the national breeding herd, be it suckler or dairy? Yeah, and that's a, look, that's a tough question. And um, if I was to stand here today with the technologies that we have available to us, I'd say, you know, well, depending on where the target lands, but even at 22%, we would struggle to get to 22% reduction with the technologies that we, excuse me, that we know we can use today. But that, 
that then ignores, I suppose, human ingenuity and it, it ignores science and innovation, which is working really hard to develop new ways to reduce our, our emissions. And that's, I suppose, a lot of that work was on display at some of the stands today. That's work around things like feed additives. It's work around uh, probably properly assessing maybe what our animals are emitting uh, at grass and, and what has been the contribution of animal breeding to to the, 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 the lower figures that we are, we are measuring today. So there's, there's more progress that can be made than we are able to do today. And, and that's the, the key role that Chagas has, is to make sure that those technologies are developed over the next uh, decade and that we support okay. you as farmers in terms right. of using those technologies. And, and, and I understand that. But let's say it comes up short or the target is even greater. Some people who are looking at Ireland Inc. are saying, 840,000 suckler cows, 1.6 million dairy cows. Now you've actually, and with sex semen, you know, beyond the heifer replacements, you could have uh, breeding genetics of beef breeds to the dairy sector. And therefore, we have, I think, processing capacity of 1.2 million litres of milk, which is unutilised. The national interest says, in terms of productivity, a cow just producing a calf, as opposed to a lactation yield as well, and the added value of butter and cheese, it's a no-brainer what we need to do. Look, that's, I think that's, that's too simplistic a way of looking at it. And, and I think the, the, the idea of it's one or the other is, is, again, not the right way to look at it. Like, for our dairy herd, and you talked about things like sex semen and, and, you know, maybe even going further and use an embryo transfer of beef embryos into dairy cows once you've got your replacement, that's really important because we do need to improve the quality of the beef coming from the dairy herd. But we have a suckler herd, 800, over 800,000 cows, a huge national resource, 70,000 farmers involved uh, in, in owning that herd, so it's actually 70,000 individual herds. It's, it's in every parish in the country, and that's not to be written off. It is a, a producer of very high-quality product. In, in some areas, it produces it where really there's not many other opportunities to, to, to produce, you know, because of, of land quality. Also, you've got to look at the, the demographics, the people that are involved in that. You know, a lot of them are, are you know, in, in their 60s or even older. They're not going to be switching into dairy. And so, you know, we, we, ha we have to work with the resources we have. That resource is there. I think it's a, a very valuable national resource, and we have to work to improve the emissions from that, but it also improve its, its survival and its, its uh, okay. prosperity. Before moving the on, future. the other question I want to ask is, the measurement of CO2, methane, and uh, N2O. Mm -hmm. uh, say if a farmer here wants to find out their own carbon footprint. We've heard about the demonstration farms, the signpost farms. What can Chagask offer the individual farmer who wants to improve and measure and improve their own carbon mm -hmm. footprint? Yeah. What are you offering? So we're, we, we, we can do that. Obviously, we do that on the demonstration farms. We do it in a very in-depth way on those farms with a huge amount of recording of, of, of um, inputs and outputs and, and soil sampling and so on. And we want to actually take that to the situation that we can roll that out to, to tens of thousands of farmers. And uh, we're in the process of, of developing a, um, a methodology or a, a, a system to do, to do that. And we would hope uh, to begin next year uh, to enrolling farmers you know, that, that wish to, to do that to give them a very um, uh, accurate assessment of what their carbon footprint is. 
And you know, wh why are we doing that? Because as an advisory organisation, if we want to go out and work with the farmer to show him or her how to reduce their emissions, well, you absolutely need to be able to tell them where they're starting from. So we then want to be able to do the what-ifs with that. What if I did this or what if I did that? Where would that get me to? So we want to be able to build that kind of a, a package that our advisors can use uh, with, with, you know, we have 40,000 clients and we want to work with those and indeed with other farmers that aren't clients uh, to, bring, to help them go, go, go on that journey. Okay, side by side with this environmental and economic debate, Alastaunton has been this health debate, whereby there's been a war on red meat, that it's hazardous to your health. What is the factual situation about, we know it's a source of protein, this red meat, uh, beef in our diet? There's been numerous publications in the medical and scientific literature, particularly in the last three years, which have been saying that red meat eating needs to be dramatically reduced, if not totally excluded from the human diet for the benefit of human health. Uh, the Lancet Journal has probably been the leading publisher of these articles, and there was a particularly influential article published in 2020 called The Global Burden of Disease 2019 Analysis, and it increased the number of deaths attributed to red meat eating uh, from about 25,000 annually worldwide to almost 900,000. So an increase of 36-fold without providing any evidence whatsoever. Uh, no published evidence. They just said uh, from the first mouthful of red meat eating, uh, not only was it causing colon cancer, it was causing uh, diabetes, heart attacks, strokes, and breast cancer uh, from the first mouthful uh, per week. Uh, so a group of us challenged that. Uh, we wrote an art, uh, a letter to The Lancet and said, where's the evidence? And this is not an agreement with what's published in the medical literature. It took us nine months to get our letter published. Uh, we were blocked in multiple ways. Eventually, some investigative journalists uh, expressed interest, asked questions of The Lancet, and our uh, article was published. Uh, the Global Burden Disease collaborators initially were not going to answer our questions. Uh, then they were, and then they weren't again. Eventually, three weeks after our article was published, they did publish uh, a letter of response uh, where they admitted, actually, you know, we got it wrong, actually, Red meat doesn't cause hemorrhagic stroke, which is the worst type of stroke. It actually protects from stroke, uh, hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, they said, actually, you know, the optimal amount of red meat to, eat, uh, to be eaten is not zero. It's more than that. And we'll have to redo all our calculations. Um, and we'll, we'll get it right next time in a couple of years' time. That's not good enough because... The data from the Global Burden of Disease collaborators are used by the UN, by the WHO, by the EU Farm to Fork, used the 2017 data. Uh, the National Food Strategy in the UK used the 2017 data, or used, no, used the 2019 data, said red meat eating actually was worse than salt eating. Uh, 
So we are still involved in a discussion with the Lancet. We've said, okay, it is unacceptable according to your own guidelines, unacceptable according to international medical publishing guidelines for admitted confirmed errors not to be corrected okay. immediately. So, so and also it is absolutely against those guidelines to be giving estimates without evidence. So beyond the Lancet, what is the information? Is there a certain amount of kilograms yep. per year that is good, part of a balanced diet? Is there any difference between grass-fed beef and fe uh, beef fed on concentrates? And is there a difference between processed meat and a steak? Okay, the best evidence that you can get from the literature says that um, if you eat red meat in a moderate helping, which would be about 120 grams uh, portion size, two to four times a week, that is very helpful in protecting against nutritional deficiencies of protein, of vitamin B12, of iron, of zinc, and also loads of unmeasured chemicals. Um, more than that, uh, there is a small uncertain relationship with heart attacks, strokes and cancer. And we don't know if that's coming from the red meat directly or whether it's coming from eating excessive calories or an unbalanced diet. But it really doesn't matter actually because we're not advising eating red meat more than four times a week anyway. So, up to that level, it's good for you. Um, very little evidence, and if there is a difference between grass-fed and uh, concentrate-fed beef, um, it'll be very small in terms of human health. However, it might be very big in terms of sustainability. Uh, processed meats, well, in fact, we're all eating far too much processed and particularly ultra-processed foods. So there is more evidence again of uh, health disadvantages for processed meat, but it's still very small and it's actually uncertain. Um, I would be in agreement with... Pardon? Red meat versus white meat? Nothing against uh, white meat other than if you eat too much of anything, uh, it's not good for you. All right. Going to flip to economic sustainability. Uh, Phelan O'Neill, uh, so a couple of quick questions for you. Uh, uh, beef hit uh, five uh, euro a, a kilogram. Uh, it's coming back a bit. Um, in, that, in the sense of, say, half our beef goes to the UK. Post-Brexit, uh, we heard a lot of uh, apocalyptic kind of warnings and so on. How has uh, Brexit worked out and how do you think it will work out? And then there's a number of current international trade deals, Mercosur, uh, access uh, into the EU, mar EU market, Australia, New Zealand beef. What are the dynamics of the market and what do you think the outlook is? Thanks, Ivan. Um, look, this is, I suppose, a question at two levels. There's a here and now. What's the picture going to be for the, the people in this tent today that's going to be finishing cattle next winter and selling next spring, where they're working of a cost base that in 2022 is mushroom compared to what it had been last year? So that's where we look at maybe the here and now price that uh, we passed four euro kilo earlier this year, we passed five euro. Uh, and that's essentially 
the, the minimum where we need to be because, again, if I refer back to the Chagas figures from just a few weeks ago there, we can see that the, in terms of the finishing and in terms of where farmers are, when you do the, and I appreciate that maybe there's nothing worse in life than averages because it masks such a different spread of performance, but the reality is that it is a very marginal business at Farmgate, and essentially what we need to be doing is holding the costs or reducing the costs and trying to hold the selling price. Now, how that's achievable is the $6 million question. When we export 90% of the product that we produce, virtually half of it to the UK. And uh, you asked the question about Brexit, and, and the reality, the frank reality is, up until this moment in time and for the immediate future, Brexit has absolutely zero impact on the Irish beef industry. Now, will that continue? It's unlikely. Uh, first and foremost, the UK has deferred the introduction of all their border control checks, which brings the administration cost and the delays, etc., which brings a, an extra charge, if you like, on doing business. The processing sector picks that up, uh, but it's still there as a cost, and every cost and every step of the chain ultimately is paid from the, the beef carcass. Uh, the longer-term thing, and the bit that I have been most concerned about, and just in the week that the European Union has concluded a free trade deal with New Zealand, uh, which will give access for a an extra 10,000 tonne of New Zealand beef at a very preferential favourable 7.5% tariff. That means that more New Zealand beef will come into the European Union, and that's further competition for Irish farmers. But that's not the biggest deal. For me, the biggest deal is the fact that the UK were straight out of the blocks to do a trade deal with Australia, with New Zealand, that essentially throws that market open to Australian and New Zealand beef. Now, Australia is the top lamb exporter in the world. They're the number three beef exporter. New Zealand's the second biggest lamb exporter, and they're about sixth, seventh, or eighth in terms of beef exporters. They will have full access. They will have as much access in time to the UK market as Irish exports. And that is when we will feel that challenge. And it is going to be a bit like boiling the frog in the saucepan, because the reality is that will be phased in over a number of years. It will take 15 years until they have full access, but they will be the competitor for Irish beef who have 80% of that market at this minute. And that is when we will start to feel it progressively. Competition growing there. We still have advantages. By then, we might have a grass-fed brand. We also have the fact that we're on their doorstep and we can deliver as quickly as the north of Scotland can, and that's good. But the reality is we will face competition and in that space. And what's the relative price? of world price, Australian, New Zealand just, price, just, just looking at, price. I just checked the New Zealand price this week uh, because uh, the trade deal was concluded and I'm looking at it in this week's Farmers Journal. Uh, the reality is beef price today in New Zealand is significantly below four euros a kilo. It's the lowest beef price in a major beef exporting country in the world. And I include Brazil in that. I include all the South American countries, North America, uh, Australia as well. So look, the reality is they will have a very price competitive, high quality product now. Okay, you might say it's mainly a dairy industry product that comes from New Zealand, but given that so much of our beef is now sold in manufacturing and pies, burgers, etc., that, that they will still be a very competitive okay. uh, in a competitive. The, the minister there. was asked about cap reform and so mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. What do you think cap reform's impact on the market will be? Because I think in terms of overall supply and demand, mm -hmm. demand is still. There was an FAO report Frank alluded to uh, yesterday 
which said that demand was still going to grow. Yeah, uh, yeah. if we look at that report in 2031, uh, the world will be looking for something, I think, in the top of my head, uh, like 4 million tonnes more beef. So, look, the beef consumption is growing. It's not growing in the developed world. It's growing in the developing world where you have the combination of population growth and increasing wealth as well, thankfully, which is a good thing. We have serious poverty in parts of particularly sub-Sahara Africa, but there is also Asian economies are growing quite fast, and that's where the growth and demand will come from. Now, the other side of that coin, of course, is Brazil, uh, and their beef industry published their 10-year report there a few weeks ago. I was looking at it, and lo and behold, you know, and at a time when we looked that we could have to take some numbers out of the equation if this target is set at the wrong place, and we have covered the KPMG, or you covered KPMG in your introductory remarks, but the reality is Brazil is going to expand their uh, cattle processing uh, by uh, 8 million units, 8 million head by 2030. Now, if you think for a moment that Ireland uh, 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 slaughters processes less than 2 million, but 1.8 million this year, they're looking, uh, their increase is looking like four times the total Irish kill. So, look, it's going to be a very competitive global market space, and you can broaden that discussion out into the rights and the wrongs of climate legislation. EU cap policy has changed to the point where they want to focus much more so on the environment than food processing, production and security. That is the reality of life. Now, you know, whether it's fair or it's unfair, that, that is where we are. We've seen, for example, one of the big areas of development, and, and perhaps the current fertiliser prices will drive this as well, the surge in, in, in uh, ambition, if you like, for organic uh, production. Uh, now, that's not going to be market-led from an Irish point of view. If that happens, and, and it quite possibly could happen, so an option farmers have to consider, that will be delivered because of incentive by support, financial that, support. That was the other thing I wanted to ask you. On the Chagas boards, it said 22 over 21 fertilizer prices plus 150 percent total costs, fuel, feed, everything, mm. up 36, 7 percent. So it varied from one chart to another, nearly 40 percent. What, are you saying that this is a spike, or will it last as long as the Ukraine war lasts, or do you think that this is a permanent change in the cost structure? I, I, I don't think even any of us, and, and if we even thought we could, we wouldn't sit here. We would be somewhere in the, in, in the finance capitals of the world uh, studying futures markets. But uh, look, the reality is I think we're faced with a high energy cost for certainly the immediate uh, and medium future. It's not going to come back anytime soon. And I think when we've seen major turbulent events, and I suppose uh, coming, being of a similar vintage to yourself, we have lived through, uh, as young people, the, the Arab-Israeli war and the oil crisis of the 1970s. We had the 1981 with the Iran-Iraq one, and we have now the latest one because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And what we have seen after that is that there, there may be some pulling back from the peaks that have been hit, but we have never quite went back to the base that we've been at before. So I think the reality of life is that we're facing, we may not be facing a fertilizer price uh, that we've had in 2022 going on into the rest of this decade, but I similarly don't think we're going to get the 2019 or 2020 price either. So the reality is we're going to be faced with dearer input costs, even if they're not quite as expensive as they are today. And that means that our commodity prices have to move to reflect those. And if they don't, the hard facts of economic life are that then the economic sustainability part of the debate's lost. Michael Biggins, you've been very patient. I had to come to someone last. I felt the earlier part of the discussion was very farmer income focused. Uh, you, you've been around today, you've been, participated in all the schemes, and, and you're a, a suckler cow farmer all your life. Um, as, as we face these challenges, how are you adapting 
on your farm. You have participated in the signpost schemes with Chagas. What are the type of things that you're doing to adapt? Well, uh, Ivan, I've been farming in my own right since the mid-70s, as you can judge by the colour of the head. But, uh, you know, I, I, I appreciate it that as we were, uh, you know, in the last number of years, things have evolved. I mean, I, <coughs> I can remember getting grant aid for reclamation and that, which is an absolute no-no now. And people have frowned on it and that, but I can tell you I reclaimed about 80% of my farm, you know, through, from grant, grant aid and that. But, uh, you know, I, I acknowledge that, you know, uh, my, son, my, my son farms with me. Uh, it's going to have to evolve and change. Uh, we have to, we want, wanted to concentrate on what's happening inside the farm gate as well. And, and like, I suppose the, more re the most important reason for, you know, joining, signing up to the signpost farm thing was, can it approve the, farm, the farm's profitability? Uh, that's number one for every farmer that comes in this place here. It's their own uh, profit profitability. Uh, Frank alluded to there earlier about new technologies uh, coming down this track, and that's all very well. But like this, the beef industry, there's so little wriggle room in the beef industry. You know, if, if new technologies are, mean extra costs, then I think we're going to have to, you know, look at maybe the, you know, the, the, the meat industry stepping up to the plate. They're talking about, you know, feed additives and that for, for uh, you know, for finishing, for finishing cattle and that. Because, because the margins are so tight, I think, you know, it's impossible to ask uh, beef farmers to, you know, to, to take up all that slack uh, in, in order for the costs um, that we're going to incur to incorporate those new technologies. And I think there's going to have to be a serious look at, you know, where... Okay, but, but where, within where, the, where, like, where, one of the things that struck me going around was there was a recurring message which was the farms that were most efficient, yeah. were most profitable, were most environmentally sustainable. And it just seemed to me that there was good practice out there, that right, you can rail against government and EU and the world and the media, but there's quite a lot within your farm that's out there today that you can apply. Absolutely. I mean, if you look, you can start with genomics, or, and like nearly every suckler cow in the country has been genomically tested at this stage, which is a massive achievement. You have, we have, you know, we had gone away from soil testing. It's coming back in big time. Sorry. Uh, it's, it's coming back in big time, a huge amount of farms are soil-tested, lime, liming and all that. You have protected urea, which people are using. You have uh, the use of LESS uh, equipment. Like, this is all technology. Earlier slaughter but, dates, earlier yeah, calving yeah, dates. And, you're, and what, what we have started doing this year since we, since we joined the, the um, signpost farm is uh, we've actually gone grass measuring, where you grass measure every, every week to see what your grass wedge is going forward for the next two to three weeks. That'll determine whether you're actually going out and uh, putting out that bag of fertilizer or not. And maybe you're not, which is a, which is a saving as well. You know, so look, there, there are technologies there and those things are, you know, you can incorporate, every farmer can incorporate those into his system. But what I'm saying is, look, going forward, we, if there's new technologies being in, in, uh, coming along, for, uh, because the beef industry is such a tight it, it, it's so, you know, it's so tight as regards profitability. There's, there's got to be uh, more buy-in from the meat industry to actually. Okay. Uh, I, I wanted to, to give you an opportunity as a West of Ireland dry stock farmer. Uh, it, 
Tour. I'm going to be the devil's advocate here. If you are running Irish agriculture on a computer programme on a desktop in Kildare Street, you would get rid of the suckler herd and you would continue to grow the dairy herd and you would have dairy beef produced on all the beef farms. All those uh, weanlings, all those uh, calves would be on dairy farms instead of a suckler herd. How do you react to that? Well, the minister alluded to it earlier as regards the comments in the media yesterday, and he said he was annoyed at it, but I can assure you, I think the, the man that wrote those comments yesterday, I think he, he, he made a great point for not having uh, economists run the country, because if, if you have that, you're going to destroy communities. He's you know, talking about replacing suckler cows. He wasn't talking about just... Uh, replacing it with dairy stock. He was talk talking about uh, forestry as well. Nothing against forestry, but in, huge par in some parts of the country, it has actually you know, destroyed communities. And you know, uh, the suckler cow is so important to rural Ireland. You know, it's, it's absolutely massive to the, a vibrant community that you know, it's not just about economists like balancing books. I think it's, it's very much in, it's, it's to do with the whole fibre of keeping rural Ireland alive, the Sucre Cup. Okay, that was a skim through. This is very much your forum. Uh, where's Paul Crossan when I need him? Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, so if anyone would like to ask a question, either generally of the panel or to any specific member, or disagree or add to any point that has been raised, that was just to really prompt the debate. The gentleman at the back, put up your, yeah, there's a gentleman there as well. Is there anyone else who wants to ask a question? Okay. Uh, I, I would just like to agree, agree with you. As I said earlier on to the minister, the only reason we have suckers is because our land type and our location, you know, I mean, we'd all begun daring long ago. I on my own farm would be milking cows if, if I had all my land is fragmented and the land type in my area. Maybe in, in hindsight, the, the plan is to actually eliminate the other suckler farmers around me and make, make room for us to go into daring. That's the only way what's left, what can go to daring has gone. The rest of us can't. And that's what I, the question I said to the minister. You know I mean, we live in locations where we can't change our enterprise and, and the money has moved since zero, zero away from us. And that's what I said to the minister now. We, I was getting 300 pounds per soccer cow, 30 pounds per year in zero, zero. Now today, it's a, a dairy farmer next door to me, nothing against dairying. This is 10 times or 20 times more profitable to me can draw the same per hectare on premiums as I can. Back then, he could get practically zero as I could get big support from the EU. That is what has happened. The money came into this country to be directed at the people that had the poorer type land and were farming fragmented holdings in areas that they could do nothing. And that is the real problem we have. We, have. we, are, we aren't against any sector. We'd all be milking cows if we could. Thanks. Is that a feature of market forces, Phelan? No, it's a, it's a feature of EU policy even, and, the, and the evolution of the cap. Uh, and, and again, Flora, you, you've been around these discussions for, for as long as I have, uh, uh, if not longer. Uh, and, and that's something that I suppose as farmers that we have to wrestle with, that we have seen this movement of money, and it has been a case of robbing Peter to pay Paul. For half the farmers of the country, it has been great. For the other half, the, and, and some of the, the best, the highest skilled, the most productive farmers of the country, they have lost out by it. Uh, this is the direction of travel of EU policy. We have failed uh, uh, collectively as a country, uh, as a sector, to have that policy reflect uh, our positions in that. And I suppose part of the reason for that is that it has been a divide and conquer approach. And it suits EU policy that they want to move towards extensification, a low production model uh, that is 
an environment focused uh, and re climate reduction focused through farm to fork as opposed to productive agriculture. And I know, and, and certainly in discussions you and I have had, we've certainly debated, well, look, that boat has sailed now. There's no point talking about it. It is policy. But I suppose the reality and the point that we would hammer in the journal is, look, that policy was made in a very different world from where we are today. And if the world has changed to the extent that I feel it has, uh, not just in the last two years with COVID, but in the last six months with war in the Ukraine, then perhaps we should be looking at that policy again. And I know at an EU level, there is a debate going on there. Now, there's, there, I, I'm not going to start predicting a change to policy. Okay. But there, that is the reality well, of life well, uh, with Frank, policy as Frank, it is. As someone who's been around this territory in terms of the history of the CAP, you know, we had big product support, we had intervention, we had butter mountains. So under the McSharry reforms, we moved to income support and a more market-orientated approach to product. Is the gentleman correct insofar as within the income supports, leaving aside the fact there are more urban voters and, you know, the minister was right about that, there's less EU money going to be available going forward as a total. Do you detect as you implement and move forward on the next round of reform that there is a tangible direction of travel of the subsidies in the impact it's going to have between different farmers? Uh, look, absolutely. The, the you know, the, the structure of the new cap is, is well known in terms of how it's going to um, uh, redistribute payments. And there's no doubt it's going to have a big impact on, on um, many farmers. I suppose there's probably more winners than losers or certainly nearly as many. But for, for those productive farmers, and um, it, is, it is going to be a, be a big, big impact on them. And, you know, it is going to force people to look at their, their options. And, you know, those options are, well, organics is one. Dairy is, is another, but as this gentleman down here said, flour, like, dairy is not an option in many, many parts of the country. And, you know, the suckler industry, or, or indeed sheep, is, you know, the best use of that land uh, resource in many parts of the country. And that's why I think it's important that we do try to maintain it and support it. And I suppose, look, um, you know, we can be all doom and gloom as well. Uh, and, and we shouldn't be like that because, um, you know, I suppose, and you would, I would say this, wouldn't I, but... The, the, there's huge benefit to be got from um, you know, running your business as best as you, as you can run it with the land resource that you have. Like, we always see the difference between the best and the worst performers or the, the lowest quarter and the top quarter is, is quite substantial. So while, da while suckler beef will never be as, as profitable as dairy, and at least in my, uh, in, in my lifetime it hasn't been and I can't see it for the foreseeable future. And, and certainly, look, suckler beef on good, good land versus suckler beef on, on more marginal land, there is a difference. It, it still is an enterprise that can uh, return a profit. And, um, and I suppose a lot of the farmers we have now that are, are suckler farmers, they're, you know, a lot of them have, have off-farm income as well. They're part-time farmers. So it has a role to play, and, uh, and there is a lot we can do to work inside the farm gate to improve it, and I think both profitability and sustainability, and, and that's what we should try to go forward with rather than um, you know, thinking that the end is nigh. The end okay. is not nigh in, in my view. All right, Paul. I've been listening to you here now for a while, and I think most of you all are missing the real point. The Beef Edge, we're here to produce food, food that's edible and lovely to eat. I talked to a butcher out there today. He's on the stand. He was the first man who made good sense to me. I said, what? You're promoting beef to eat. I said, what are the best cattle? What is the best breed of beef? 
He said, without a doubt, the, Hereff the Hereford. And he said, the Angus is next. There's not one Hereford in this place today. A few years ago, a couple of us sent a bit of Hereford strip line to the World Food Fair in, Kulo in Cologne. And we won the best beef in the world. I've been to restaurants all over this world, from California to Sydney, you name it. And the best restaurants have one thing they advertised, Hereford beef. But here I see most mad to produce continental beef. It's almost inedible. And we are all rushing to do it. We know that a Hereford eats 35%. You just look at the research in Montana, going on for 14 years in America. A Hereford eats 35% less than a continental. 35% less. We're talking about marginal land and hard to make money. And we're feeding animals that we have to pump everything into to finish. When the Hereford will get fit going around the hedges and lie in a hedge and eat it. It's a pity that we've lost this notion. What we are is food producers. And we're really, really serious. A good man came to me a while ago and he said, have you a Hereford bowl I have? Turned out he was Lord Ivy and his manager. He said, I want to try him on some Charolais. He did it. He has since come back to me and said, the cattle he's produced are the best he's ever produced. He has 12,000 acres of land in England. He's a good bit over here to Kilbrew. And he said, this is the best combination I've ever seen. This is fantastic meat. And now he wants another bowl. All right. Now, I'm not saying, I'm just saying to you, genuinely, we, yeah, no, it's we the food point. we eat. It's not a big potato. It's not the biggest potato the size of a mango. It's a beautiful British queen now in August. It's a beautiful golden wonder at Christmas. We have to, if we want to sell food worldwide, we've got to make a name for producing the tastiest, best okay. beef in the world. And we have okay. it if we only knew it. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. Yes, sir, we'll just go fairly rapidly because I want to wrap it up at least a quarter to... Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, look, I suppose, firstly, I just want to compliment Frank and his team on the work that you put in today. I mean, walking around, you couldn't but be impressed. And I want to acknowledge that. But then, Frank, I would expect it as a beef farmer. We are the second largest agricultural sector in this country. And I'm very proud to call myself a beef farmer. And what I don't want to see, and has disappointed me, is a debate on sucklers versus dairying versus dairy beef. I've yet to meet a farmer that I could call a fool. Every farmer tries to do the best for what they see fit with their land. And, you know, it frustrates me. I suppose next month I turn 40, so I'll no longer regard myself as a young farmer. But we have policy decisions that have been taken for our industry, which I find very, very difficult. Walking around, trying to follow the Tagus message for the last 20 years. And those that followed it the most the most productive, the most intensive, have seen the biggest fall in their income with regard to the reform of the common agricultural policy. But we're here now and we're talking about the environment and what we're going to have to do as a country going forward to meet our obligations. Phelan O'Neill will tell us that in Brazil they're going to expand production hugely. Yet I, farming in Carlo, are going to be expected to reduce 
The irony is that we live in the one world. We're getting policy decisions wrong. I'm very proud. I played for Carlo, a county not recognized for either football or hurling. I know what it's like to be an underdog, but does it mean you give up? And I would love to think that we can debate and we can argue our point better at a national level because it makes no sense to me that the most carbon efficient country for producing milk, the fifth for producing beef, is potentially going to be asked to reduce production. So can we try get to a stage where we get to policy that actually works for the world and not policy that's going to make things okay. worse? Okay. That, that boat has sailed, my friend, but uh, I, the gentleman at the back, uh, these are comments which are welcome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, sir. And yeah. um, um, Minister, or, uh, sorry, you're not minister now, but you were minister. And, uh, <laughs> thanks, be to, thanks be to God <laughs> to you. <laughs> But uh, at that time, you, 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 you were asking the farmers to stop producing elephants. And you were, you were fairly good at it. But now then we had a horsemeat scandal. And I was wondering, was it between you and them trying to get a fast elephant? But uh, anyway. All right, I'm going to go straight to you, sir. Because uh, uh, I want to give as many people as possible a chance. Thank you. Uh, first of all, just uh, Alice there, I would like to... Thank you for all the work you're doing behind the scenes. I know a lot of farmers aren't hearing about it, but um, it's something that had annoyed me for a long time in the Lancelot. So I'm delighted to see you putting up a bit of a fight, and I'd like to see you keeping that good work up and taking the fight on a bit further. But my question is, like, you know, going around there today, and no matter what board you went to, there seemed to be a theme of the age and reducing animals, the slaughter age for animals. Um, Frank, in the meetings we have been at the last few months and years, Frank talked about all these tools that Chagas have to, to help climate change uh, that we could meet our targets. For farmers, we only need one tool, and that tool is in our pocket, and it's money. And unless we get a bit of money to make the change, we'll never be able to change. So my question is to the panel, um, for us to be profitable, we're going to need more out of beef. Is there room in the marketplace? Will the consumer, will the government, will somebody provide us with more assistance so that we're in profit? We can't do it if we're not in profit. Profit has to be the whole thing. Farmers have to be sustainable. The profit has to be sustainable to make a change. If we have the money, we can make a change. If we haven't the money, we can do nothing. Okay, a range of questions there, and I'm going to draw a line under it there, if that's all right. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Alice, maybe, because there was an issue there of, of residues and the antimicrobials and the other things. Is that an issue in terms of Irish red meat or not? And any, any other point, because I won't be going back to you again, that you want to respond to the general tenor of the comments? Um, I think the uh, Food Safety Authority, with all their checks um, and the veterinary process, um, Irish beef and Irish meat and European um, meat in general um, is pretty free of residues. Now, I'm not an expert in that area, but I'm assured that that is the position. I would come to one. I'm absolutely happy that, um, that red meat 
in the correct proportions is healthy for human life. But as Frank and I were discussing, there is one other issue that is coming up that I think you should be aware of that's coming up amongst uh, public health experts. And what they are talking about is if climate change and climate crisis happens, um, the world will not be a very happy or healthy place. We will have chaos, we will have immigration, we will have violence, we will have famines, we will have extra diseases. So it is becoming a conversation amongst public health and nutrition experts that diets that we eat have to be both healthy and sustainable. And that is an area that red meat is going to have to look at worldwide. Now, absolutely, I hear and I acknowledge that, uh, or it is correct, that Irish beef, in fact, is producing probably a quarter of the emissions that is, uh, occurs in other countries. But uh, it's got to be totally sustainable in the long run uh, because we can't let climate crisis happen. And this is actually going to influence national dietary guidelines. It's starting to in the Scandinavian countries. Uh, Brussels, Germany, Norway are all making moves on it. And the discussion is starting within Ireland as well. So the sustainability data is going to have an impact on the discussions on diet. Uh, and that is going to gradually happen over the, in the coming years. And, and it's my observation as a completely that the health co public health coalition and the environment coalition are coalescing uh, increasingly, whether we like it or not. Michael, yeah. a number of comments, a number of things, or anything you want to get off your chest? Well, um, first of all, and my first comment was the most important reason for me getting involved in St. Paul's Farm was profit. You know what I mean? To see inside my farm gate, to see, can I, I think, and I said that's, that's every farmer's uh, goal, like to, 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 get, to make his farm as profitable as possible. Uh, I absolutely have nothing to do with dividing farmers as regards dairy and beef. I was yeah, discussed yesterday with that, with that comment. Uh, I do take um, a certain amount of, of uh, comfort from the fact that the minister said it here earlier as well, that uh, he wasn't asking any sector to reduce uh, production, as indeed the Commissioner said at the uh, IFA National Council a few weeks ago that uh, he actually thanked Irish farmers for producing enough food to feed 40 plus million people uh, worldwide. And like we do it in a sustainable way. And as I said, one of the most re as I said, the main reason I got into to the St. Paul's farms was to, make, to seek is there a way of doing it more sustainably because that's, that's where we need to be at. As, as, and we, we've talked about it earlier as regards the, 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 you know, the, the, around the stands there today. What, what, I want to make it quite clear, what I was asking the meetings to do was to come up. We've seen uh, one of the co-ops only uh, this week come up with uh, an offer of you know, 400 euros for, uh, you know, for fertiliser. Uh, you know, in, 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 and I'm talking about a West of Ireland co-op. Uh, so I'm, what I'm saying, if there's going to be talking about putting feed additives to cattle, that that's what, you know, the meat industry which which we are sustaining, 
with our, with our produce, they need to step up to the plate for it. That was my comment and, on that. And as I always say, in relation to the suckler debate, in fairness, there were suckler cows before there was cars. Uh, so who Definitely. did cause this problem in the first place? Uh, I, I'm going to leave the last word to Frank because I want you to sum up on the day and the forum and the minister. I think it's been a fabulous day. Phelan, a number of questions there. I, I just want to pick up on the, on the point about money here, which is uh, I think what anyone that has uh, came to this excellent day today will have been about is how to make their business more efficient. And in terms of money in your pocket, the reality of life is that for some of, for the best, most productive suckler farmers of the country uh, and, and beef finishers, the reality is that the support mechanism that has been in place for them has been eroded over the past 10 years to the point where it is now uh, essentially no longer viable. The only other source of revenue then is the marketplace. And for a short period in June this year, the Irish beef price was at the top of the export, ex, beef exporting countries in the world. Uh, and that was a, was a nice and a good place to be. But even then, you know, it was still a very marginal business. I don't think that the market can return enough, in the, certainly in the short term and the medium term, to fill that gap that has been left there. That is the economic reality of it. Uh, will we have a beef industry then? Well, look, uh, the reality is there's such a big swathe of our country and farming population that it is the only viable option, uh, beef and, and sheep production. So therefore, that business will continue as uh, probably a part-time enterprise. But no, I, I struggle to be positive in terms of the market stepping forward to replace the income that is lost in some of the very high-volume farms of the country. But conversely, that transfer of income will make other farms that perhaps were less viable, not viable, and, and less productive farms will now make those viable. So it is, if you like, something of a changing of the guard there. Okay, Frank, uh, a number of points. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I am getting the message here that the suckler industry does feel like the forgotten uh, Cinderella almost, that the, their position is declining. The numbers in terms of the National Livestock Survey do indicate that decline. Um, do you feel what we've learned today gives a positive response to that? Look, the, the suckler industry, certainly um, farm, many farmers have got out of it in the last couple of years. Logically, there was an opportunity for some of them to get into dairy, and, and look, that's, that's just the reality. But that doesn't mean, and I keep saying this, that the, the suckler beef industry or the suckler part of our beef beef industry is a sunset industry. It still is an industry that has a huge amount to offer um, to, to the, the country and to the people, the 70,000 people that have sucklers on their farm and to all the other parts of the industry, the processing, the inputs and so on that, that, that depend on that. So look, we're, a gentleman down there um, said that we're, I can't remember the exact point he was making, but you know, are we committed to, to people that are in less marginal areas? And look, we certainly are. You know, we're committed to to farming in all parts of the country and to all enterprises. And for the suckler industry, um, or the suckler sector, we launched our Future Beef Programme about six months ago. Um, it's part of the signpost programme, it's the part, part that Michael is involved in. And, and that's, look, our commitment to, to sucklers is, is rock solid in that we, we, we want to support farmers that are involved in, in, in suckling to make as much profit. And look, we, I'm sure people would have noticed the big focus on sustainability here today and, and greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. And certainly, yet yeah, Chagas is putting that very high up on our priority list. But we're not naive enough to think that that's the priority of, of farmers. Obviously, farmers, the first thing you've got to do is make your businesses as, as profitable and as financially viable as, as you can. So we are very conscious when we 
talk about technologies to, to reduce emissions, that they have to be technologies that save money or improve profit. And in general, they are. Now, some of the future technologies that we're working on, like feed additives, as Michael says, they are going to cost money. And that is a question, how are they going to be paid for? Because the, there's not the profit in the industry to pay for that additional cost unless there's an additional return uh, for, for the produce that's produced with that. So look, um, in terms of summing up, you know, we, we certainly have a new challenge. Like the beef sector is always facing challenges. I, I'm kind of working, you know, nearly 40 years, you know, uh, in sort of either studying or working in the industry. And over that time, the beef industry has always been challenged by profitability, and, and that remains today. And that requires the farmers to use their ingenuity uh, to make do the best they can, and to, with the support of the likes of us, uh, for them to try, try, try to do the best they can. But we, we have this new challenge on the block now, which is environmental sustainability, and in particular climate change. And as I said at the start, we, we cannot ignore it for three reasons. One, regulation won't allow us ignore it. The law of the land has committed to these targets. Two, it's the right thing to do, you know, and, and by and large, I think every citizen in the country wants to do the right thing. And so we, we have to address uh, the climate challenge. But three, there's the opportunity bit, and I want to come back to that, because, you know, when we say it's the right thing to do, you know, are we Boy Scouts, you know, and we're very naive, and, you know, people talked about Brazil failing, you talked about Brazil increasing their beef production by four times as much as what we, we produce. And, and that's a real, you know, the world is a real imperfect place. And we can throw our hands at it and say, to hell with it, we're going to do nothing, or we can do the best we can. And that brings us back to the opportunity, because I do think there is an opportunity uh, for Ireland, not just the beef sector, but for Irish food production to differentiate itself as you know, the best in class in relation to uh, environmental sustainability. So, so for that triumvirate of things, you know, the, 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 the opportunity, the right thing to do, and also the fact that the regulator is there, it is an issue we have to address. And we can address it, I suppose. That's the message I, I would like people to go home with, that this is not a hopeless challenge. You know, it's, we've, we face challenges every day in our, in our lives and our businesses. And once there's ways to, to meet those challenges, I think people, you know, they're, they're up for that challenge by and large, I think. And, um, and I suppose it's our job, and you can be rest assured that we will be working very hard at it to help you uh, to, to meet these challenges. And, you know, we are prioritising this as, as, as the issue, I suppose, for the, 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 the next decade. And uh, I'm optimistic by nature, and I'm not going into this challenge thinking that failure is, is going to meet us uh, halfway. I, I think we can get there as, as an industry. Okay, I'm going to leave the last word to you, Frank. Uh, I think by, you know, many of these people who are involved in international uh, panels, their opinions are sought after. It has been a top-class panel. So please maybe show your collective appreciation for Phelan, Frank, Alice and Michael. That's all for this week's episode. You can catch up on all other shows and interviews from the Beef Edge podcast on the Chagas website at chagas.ie or you can listen on Apple and Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe so you never miss the show. For all other updates from our Beef programme, keep an eye on our Twitter and Facebook pages. Until next time, I'm Catherine Egan and thanks for listening.